This episode is sponsored by Toner Microphones, your sound master. Toner provides the best audio solution for podcasters, content creators, and people who work from home. Today on Growth Mindset University. I think that this is something that we should take seriously of reading the work of people who we wouldn't ordinarily agree with. You're listening to Growth Mindset University, educating tomorrow's leaders with lessons from today's entrepreneurial elite. It's a progressive new age of business we find ourselves in, and we'll help you find the success you seek by listening to today's industry professionals and thought leaders teach us the lessons we should have learned in school but didn't. Now, please welcome your host, Jordan Paris. My guest today is David Perel. David writes an excellent blog at Perel.com with over 28,000 subscribers. He's a young guy just like myself. He runs a writing school called Rite of Passage. And of course, you can tell just, of course, by the school that he runs and the amount of subscribers he has that he is an excellent writer, or at least you can imply that. And you can tell how excellent of a writer he is if you just see any of his tweets at David underscore Perel on Twitter. That's where I caught on to David. Highly recommend you follow him and reach out to him there. Uh, he's in my top three accounts to follow along with, uh, of course, Zuby. And this guy, David, just thinks differently. We talk about that along with writing today. It's a little bit meta. We're thinking about thinking at some parts of this interview. You can share this episode at jordanparis.com slash EP196. Also, the show notes will be at jordanparis.com slash EP196. And in the show notes will be a link to an episode of David's podcast, the North Star Podcast, uh, with his guest, James Clear, a couple of years ago. It's all about habits. James wrote that book called Atomic Habits. You may have heard of it. And there are just some things that from that interview that I took with me even uh, I, I take with me even today, months later. So again, that's jordanparis.com slash EP196 for the show notes. And that is also the link to share this episode. And now without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with David Perel. I've got with me David Perel today. David is, he's one of 31 people that I follow on Twitter. He's one of those guys that just doesn't miss. So uh, I, and I just had to reach out to him. He's just an outstanding writer. I think of him very much like Seth Godin, who's coming on the podcast a couple of months from now. I know you've interviewed him as well, David. So David, you've got your own awesome podcast called The North Star Podcast. Uh, people can find you on the Twitter account that I was talking about, at David underscore Perel. P-E-R-E-L-L, so one R, two L's, and then Perel.com. Again, one R, two L's. So David, welcome to Growth Mindset University. Thank you. Seth Godin is the OG of OGs. It's funny, I've I've been deconstructing Seth a lot in terms of some of the things he does. So I appreciate the compliment. That's one of the biggest accomplish accomplishments compliments that I could get, but in particular right now I've been binging his stuff. Yeah, dude. I, I, I started reading his blog long time ago after I heard him on Tim Ferriss's podcast. Like everyone in, in our space heard that episode, I'm, I'm sure. 
And uh, it was right around like the Derek Sivers episode too. I don't know if you know mm-hmm. Derek, but those were like two just rock solid podcasts, two of like my favorite that I've ever listened to. What are uh, some of the things that you've deconstructed from him? Like, what are you what are you picking apart? I think that one of the things that Seth does first, the internet rewards people who are prolific, and Seth has published more than seven thousand posts. He never misses a day. And one of the theories that I have about online writing and at least the consistency aspect, like I publish a newsletter that comes out every Monday and every Friday, and I publish a podcast every week. And one of the things that builds a lot of trust with people, because that's fundamentally what's scarce. I mean, you can just buy attention. You just go on Facebook, you go on Google, and you can get people's eyeballs. I mean, it's not cheap, but it's also not super expensive. What's the scarce resource is trust. How many people, when you launch a product, are going to come right to you and say, hey, I want that product? How many people are going to open up your emails when you reach out to them? And you said very nicely that I don't miss a beat. I hope that that's the case because it's something that I think a lot about. Mm. So there's a couple different ways of defining brand. And I think that uh, the way that a lot of people think about brand is our brand is going to be the best and you are going to have the best experience that you've ever had. This experience is going to be life-changing. And that is one way of looking at brand, but it's actually not that helpful. A way of looking at it that was much more helpful for me is a brand is the range of outcomes that you can expect from somebody. And actually, that doesn't mean that you need to be the best at all. And this is when it gets really interesting. Mm -hmm. So if you take something like Walmart, you know what's awesome about Walmart? You go to Walmart, and it's not, like, incredible. Walmart is as mundane as it could possibly be. But what's great about Walmart is when you walk into Walmart, you know that they're going to have all the basics and that they always will. And the way that Walmart is actually structured as a company is when Sam Walton founded the company, what they did was Walmart had, so Walmart, just so you know, owns more private jets than any other company in America. And what's interesting about their private jets is you're like, oh my goodness, that is such a luxurious experience to go fly in a Walmart private jet. I've heard from people who've done it. It's really not that great. (laughs) That really what Walmart does, because they're all about low prices. They're all about getting deals for their customers. And in order to do that, they keep their costs low. So the private jet experience isn't that great. You're not going to fly on some beautiful Gulfstream. My point in saying this is that Walmart stores are very locally managed. So for example, two stores in Panama City Beach, Florida, one by the beach and one that's say 10 miles away, they're actually going to have a very different selection. So to get back to my point about brand, you know that not only is Walmart going to have everything, but they're going to also be localized. And that a Walmart next to Panama City Beach in Florida, they're going to have the wherewithal to know, hey, we're going to need some snorkels. Hey, we're going to need some floaties so that kids can go swim in the water. So you have Walmart and then you have something like my newsletter, right? I actually never send a newsletter to say, hey, I want this to be the best thing ever. That's not what I'm going for. That's how people think about brand. But what you want is I want every single newsletter to just be rock solid. This was good. This was good. This was good. I learned something every single time I open that, and I never want to disappoint. And so for me, when it comes to building a brand, what I think about is how do I narrow the range of distributions 
so that then that builds trust over time. Now, here is the tension that you can't just follow that advice because as a creator that you yourself know, and as an artist, that's what it means to do this work. If you get too narrow, it gets boring. So what you want to do, the, the, the real dance with your audience, and this is what's fun, is how do you have a narrow distribution of outcomes while also keeping yourself entertained and being in a place where you get to go try all these different things and getting to a place where your online audience and the work that you do enhances your life and expands your horizons rather than limiting them. And that is a serious challenge that I spend many, many hours thinking about. Yeah, man. That was intense. And uh, something I noticed about you, you speak very much in these ideas that, you know, I don't know, I don't even know how one even would come up with these, like the things that you write about in, you know, short form on Twitter, and then, you know, even in long form on, you know, in blogs on your website, like, what did I read today? I read one big idea today. And I was like, how does this guy even think of that? I think a lot about these things. So when I was 21 years old, I had the incredible- How old are you now, by the way? 25. Okay. How old are you? 22, yeah. Nice. Awesome. I love young people who are crushing it. I just talked to a 21-year-old guy who just wrote a book called Writing for Software Developers. His name's Philip. Same sort of thing, man. I, it's This is what makes the internet so cool. It is that- young people who sort of like you right you sort of just get that you can reach out to anyone you get that if you create things then all of a sudden these new interesting inbound opportunities happen you get that you can use the internet to just reach incredible people like you've interviewed grant cardone seth godin Derek sivers right seth i know is coming in the future but that's incredible that you realize that as so young it's really cool and so when i was 21 i had the opportunity to interview Neil deGrasse Tyson in oh his my office gosh. at the Museum of Natural History the day his book came out. Is that on the that, podcast, by the way? Yeah, it's one of the early episodes. And you know what's funny? Wow. What's funny is I was such an amateur that I didn't even have my own microphone. So we had one microphone for the interview right, and right. my microphone was like way far away. And so my audio comes in through his microphone. It is humiliatingly oh, bad audio man. quality like no, i know exactly what i mean. absolutely no. botched it but i had no money at the time right so like for me i was just i had my nice microphone which was 22 dollars on amazon and then i had my cheap microphone which was 12 dollars on amazon so i used the 12 dollar one he had the 22 dollar one and that day he was probably just like who is this guy it was funny because even when he looked at me he was like, what are you doing here? Because no that way. day he had been on the Today Show in the morning, oh New York Times right God. before me, North Star Podcast, my show, episode seven. <laughs> then he was on, then he had the Wall Street Journal right after, and he was on the Colbert oh Report that night. I mean, God. I had no business doing this. <laughs> How did you even get there? Like, what? Yeah, yeah I'll tell you. So <laughs> you, just, you just asked. <laughs> I, I, I literally just asked, but I didn't ask him. So what I did was... I. I got lucky. And so there was a guy named Massimo Pellucci. 
And Massimo, I was reading his blog one night, must have been 10 o'clock at night, and I fired off a cold email to Massimo. And Massimo was a philosopher of Stoicism at a place called the Graduate School. That's the name of the school in New York City. And so he was really interested in Stoic philosophy, and I didn't realize that before that he was interested in the philosophy of science. And... After the interview, we we met on 35th and 6th in Manhattan, and it was this room, you know, with ugly fluorescent lights. Fluorescent lights always give me a headache. Low ceiling, like eight feet tall, really stuffy in there. Classic academic building. No livelihood or energy. And right. <laughs> at the end, at the end, I asked Mossimo, hey, can you introduce me to somebody for a future guest? And he goes, oh, you can interview this person out in the boonies of Brooklyn. I went out to do this interview last stop on the 2-3 train. Then there was another woman who I interviewed at Columbia, all the way on the other end of the 2-3 train. And then he was like, oh, I just realized that Neil deGrasse Tyson is one of my best friends and he would be great for an interview. So I said, yes, but I mean, I'm 21 at the year, 21 years old at the time. So I'm like, don't freak out. Don't freak out. Play it cool, man. Play it cool. Yeah. Yeah. And act so like been there. Yeah, exactly. Act like you've been there. Hadn't at all. And so he puts me in touch with Neil's just private email address that comes from some weird, like it's not Gmail, it's not Yahoo, Hotmail, none of that. Right? I'd never heard of it. You know, it's like for, it's probably like $8,000 a month only for famous people. And I follow up, follow up, follow up, follow up, no response. And so I remember getting so mad at myself. David, you botched this thing. David, you said something stupid, all mad. And I remember I basically didn't have a job at the time. And because I'd been laid off from a job like a month before. And that's the only job I will ever have, by the way. I I, I got laid off really? and I said I will never, ever, ever work for somebody else. And Very I similar remember, story with a very similar promise made to myself, yes. Yep. I understand. I remember a Tuesday morning, 8 a.m., sun shining through my window, waking up, email from Neil that just one sentence, it says, expect an email about this later today, about me interviewing him. So then... I got to interview him at the Museum of Natural History in his office with stuff signed from presidents, a certificate of an asteroid that was named after him, all this crazy stuff. It was an insane experience. But anyway, let me answer your question because you were asking about ideas. So with Neil, Neil said something to me that was shocking to me when I first heard it, but in retrospect, actually totally feasible. He said, I basically never say something in public that I haven't written down before. So you're like, how could that be possible? How could you possibly write so much? How could it be that every time you're saying something, you've written it down before? And I will tell you, as somebody who writes for 90 minutes every day, it is absolutely possible. So then you get every day, every day. So what you realize is when you write that much, what ends up happening is you find things and you find ways of saying things that are very catchy. And so maybe not every word that you are saying is something that you've written down before, but like the Neil deGrasse Tyson story that I just told, I recently wrote that 
and actually structured that entire post out and decided not to publish it because it just wasn't that good. But then when I go tell you the story, I can tell the story in a way that's actually pre-structured. Mm-hmm. So I don't really have to think about these things. What I do is I writing, I tweeted this yesterday, writing isn't the byproduct of thinking. Writing is where thinking actually happens. Writing is the process by which you are truly thinking. And there's this famous statue by a guy named Rodin. And Rodin was a sculptor, and it's called The Thinker. And what it is, is Rodin, the the, the statue, is sitting down, hunched shoulders in this classic thinking pose with his right knuckle pressed up against the bottom of his chin. And that's how people think of thinking. Or it's like this Dumbledore, you know, Harry Potter sort of look with the long beard. But that's not how I think about thinking. I think about thinking in rewriting sentences. So if writing is thinking, rewriting is rethinking. And so you then get to a point where You can then speak eloquently and you can not really miss a beat, hopefully, because you've already done the work before. And it was one of those ideas that I thought was crazy when I first heard it. But in retrospect, it makes total sense. And that's why Neil deGrasse Tyson speaks so eloquently. Yeah. And I remember when I wrote, when I was writing my first book, like things were coming out of me that I didn't even know I I had in me. Like so much thinking was going on, so much learning about myself was going on. Like, I mean, I think one of the best ways to learn about yourself and the best way to learn about a topic is to write extensively about it. I mean, that's certainly been my experience. And also too, like when you're writing something like in a book, for example, or something, you know, online, David, like, you know, your blogs with your name attached to it and you're putting it out to thousands of people, like you can't, you can't really be 95% sure about something. Like you have to be 100% sure that what you're writing is true. Like you have to know that that statistic is like a, a real thing. Like you can't be 95 or 99% sure it's a real thing. Like it has to actually be real. So like I, all this stuff, I mean, when I'm thinking about it, you know, in my head, but when it goes down on paper, like I get rid of those like mental gaps. Like we we tend to make these these mental leaps in our in our minds, you know, when we just think about things, they're they're like half baked thoughts. And I think that when you put it down on paper or you know online, and you're you're actually writing it, it becomes pretty much full baked. Does that you know? Does that make sense? Yeah, writing is the fastest way to realize how little you know. There are so many things. That too. Wow. There are so many things that before you start writing, you are absolutely certain of and then you put words on a page and you're like ah i actually don't know if that's true i had dinner with a guy named tyler cowan this was about a year ago and tyler used to write for the new york times now he writes for bloomberg and he is probably one of the out of all economists has like one of the biggest online followings written a blog post every day for the last 17 years and funds some of my work through a program called emergent ventures And one of the things that Tyler and I, we were sitting down and we were having dinner and we were saying, you know, isn't it interesting that athletes train, that they work out intensely, they write, they'll, they'll, they'll go to the gym every single day, they have a workout program, they have a diet program, all these sorts of things. This is what athletes do. Knowledge workers don't do any of that. 
knowledge workers say, oh, I take my work seriously because I sit down and focus. Oh, I take my work seriously because I have an office at home. That isn't training. And what's really interesting is knowledge workers don't take their work very seriously when you compare them to somebody like LeBron James. You look at LeBron James early on in his career, the guy could not shoot field goals very well. His field goal percentage was extremely low. I mean, he was good at dunks and he was good at layups, of course. And even though he started as a small guy, he bulked up pretty fast. But now if you look at LeBron, he can hit threes and he can hit jump shots like he never could before. What does that mean? That means that people have to then guard him closer on, which means that with his speed and his size, he can then go right past people. So paradoxically, by getting better at the jump shot, he's better now at dunks and layups. What is my point in all of this? LeBron set a very dedicated summer goal every single offseason for many years. And if you look at his shooting percentage in his early days of the Cavs, and then after he says, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach and go to the Miami Heat, his shooting percentage goes way up. So my question is, how do you do that for writers? Tyler's answer was that every day he writes out his argument and then we'll write out the other side of an argument. And by doing that every single day, he Ooh, can yeah. get what Hegel called a dialectical mode of thinking, where you can very easily bounce between different ideas and see things from different perspectives. So you can have your thesis, you can find the antithesis, and then you could synthesize the two ideas. That's what true thinking is. And to get back to your point about 100% certainty, one of the mistakes that many writers make, and it's a lazy mistake, is they will be concerned that people are going to be tough on their writing. They're going to say, hey, you're – they're going to bash you because they disagree. They're going to say, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. So what they'll do is they'll have a statement and then they'll dilute the statement by adding words like probably, maybe, oh, perhaps. Minimizers, minifiers, Yeah. What good writing is, wow. stick your damn head out and say exactly wow. what you think. And rather than having words like maybe and probably, do the work to have the opposite side of the opinion afterwards. So yes. what you do is you make a bold claim that is out there, that is aggressive, that is good, entertaining writing. Then what you do is you come back with the opposite side of the argument and you make the opponent's argument, you make that case better than they could themselves. And every time you do that, you win credibility points. About Neil deGrasse Tyson, too, I, I heard this from him in an interview with Tom Bilyeu on his podcast where, you know, around the 40-some minute mark, Neil is talking about how true science is, you know, when you can understand the other, you know, the other point of view, the other side, the antithesis, right, as you mentioned, and that's reflected on his bookshelf, Neil's bookshelf. You know, most you think about most people's bookshelves, and uh, you know, myself included. If I was in uh, my place right now, you'd see like a bunch of bookshelves behind me. That's usually what most people see when they're on the podcast. But you know, I'm guilty of this, where like a lot of my my bookshelf, most of it kind of reflects my school of thought, um, with the with the exception of a few things. Like I'm Jewish, and I have like seven Joel Osteen books that, you know, and I've read, you know, I've read several of them um, and they weren't given to me as gifts. Like I willingly went out and bought them. But 
you know, other than that, like it's all stuff that I kind of like agree with. But Neil has, as, as a scientist, as one of the foremost scientists in the world, he has all these books on religion and UFOs, shelves on UFOs. He doesn't necessarily believe in it, but he needs to understand it. And uh, Robert Greene even has a quote too in his uh, Laws of Human Nature on uh, on the chapter about rationality and irrationality or whatever. You know, pretty much what I said earlier, when you understand the other side or when you can like vouch for the other side to the opposite point of view, like that's true science. I think it's super important. I put out, David, the other the other week, I put out this Instagram story about like why we need to reopen the 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 economy and, and America. And uh, and I put out like eight stories, really put my neck out there. And I got like I got so many uh, replies. Like I don't think I've ever gotten so many replies on Instagram before. And I'm not even cool on Instagram. But then I felt bad. So the next day, I put out like eight more stories completely about the other stuff other side like why we you know why it, it might be wise to stay home when less than 24 hours earlier i was like adrenaline pumping fight or flight like we need to reopen and i'm putting myself out there like that and then and then the next day i'm coming back and i'm like you know what maybe we shouldn't and i felt so much better but like i actually felt like a good person mm-hmm. <laughs> you know yeah and i feel like I, I understand it much more yeah, I like your point about knowing the other side. Well, I was looking last night at some screenshots. So there's this famous beef between Nassim Taleb and Steven Pinker. And Nassim Taleb, Steven Pinker has basically criticized Taleb for not reading his books before he criticizes them. And Taleb posted a screenshot of all of his notes from the blank slate by Steven Pinker. And it was an impressive body of notes. I mean, you had pages that had been scribbled over and over and over again. And I think that this is something that we should take seriously of reading the work of people who we wouldn't ordinarily agree with. One of the books that I've been obsessed with right now is Das Kapital by, by Karl Marx. It was his final tome. And it is fascinating. I mean, this isn't where th- this isn't the communist manifesto. This isn't where he came out and said, "Hey, we should be pro pro communism." And regardless of what you think about Marxist ideologies, Marx was a phenomenal critic and explainer of how capitalism works, between how labor and capital interact, and what was so what has been so interesting about it and i noticed this as well in the end of history by fukuyama was how different the actual book was from the narrative and the way that it had been parodied by people now that's not always true some books are very similar but it has been interesting reading das kapital and being shocked at how different the the book actually was. And then for anyone who wants to get into it, I recommend the David Harvey transcripts and his co-reading, his explanation of Das Kapital that you can read beside the book and then just go to Marxist.org to actually read it. Um, Because it has just been shocking how different it was from what I ever expected. But the point is here, say that I, whatever my opinion on this will end up becoming the the point is that 
to go back to what Taleb was saying, is you want to understand your opponent's arguments better than they do. And that is what true thinking is. I don't know how often you end up in fierce debates with other people who are really smart, but very often what a good debate does, I had this happen with Christianity, where I had dismissed, I grew up Jewish like yourself, and I dismissed Christianity oh. as as an idea for, you know, for my whole life. And I hadn't taken the idea very seriously. And I was with a friend who we we spent a couple days together and he just walked me through how he thinks about things, how Christianity has impacted his worldview. And I've spent the better half of the last year and a half exploring Christian ideas, reading the Gospels, especially studying certain parts of Mark, like Mar or of Matthew, Matthew like thirteen with the five different parables: the parable of the seed, um, all of those par parable of the mustard seed. Just absolutely fascinating. And what I continue to find is for people that I dis that I thought that I vehemently disagreed with. When you talk to smart people who have those yes. opinions, you are consistently humbled by how little you know and how much you've parroted other people's ideas. And for better and for worse, and it's for better because it makes you smarter, it's for worse because of how it hits your emotions. One of the things you realize when you write online and you get all these responses from people is you realize just how wrong you are about how many things you thought you were 100% right about. This episode of Growth Mindset University is sponsored by Toner. In fact, I'm recording this ad right now with a Toner Q9 microphone. It's an all-in-one solution. The Toner Q9 mic kit includes a condenser microphone, a metal shock mount, a scissor arm stand with adjustable suspension, a pop filter, a foam mic cover, and more. The cardioid condenser capsule enables the Q9 to capture pristine sound quality and cancel noise from surroundings, perfect for people who don't have a soundproof studio. For example, I'm recording this in a very echoey room with no carpet. If I were recording this on my Blue Yeti, you would hear the sound bouncing off the walls. But since I'm recording this with my Toner Q9, it sounds like I'm in a studio-grade room. So if you're a podcaster, the Q9 mic kit is your best choice at only $69.99. And Toner is offering an exclusive 20% discount code for you with the code Jordan Paris, capital J, capital P, no spaces. Available at jordanparis.com slash toner. That's jordanparis.com slash T-O-N-O-R. Also available on Amazon. One of the things you realize when you write online and you get all these responses from people is you realize just how wrong you are about how many things you thought you were 100% right about. Oh my gosh, yes. Feel you. So here's why this true thinking, understanding the thesis and anti-thesis, uh, here's why I believe, I'm not even going to say I believe, I'm just going to say, here's why this is so important. Because it mitigates the effects of the confirmation bias. You know, our brains only tend to only look for things that, uh, you know, fit our worldview and the things that that we agree with and support our point of view and our side. So with confirmation bias, I think you're right. I mean, look, this is this is what's hard. But, you know, the thing is, 
a lot of people take these mental models and they say, oh, they're just bad. And they're not just bad. Like these ideas of confirmation bias, they also have a side to them that are extremely useful. And I think his name, his last name is Gigerenzer. And he wrote a book on decision-making. And he tells this great story of the power of heuristics. And basically, you know Sully, the the pilot who landed the U.S. Air, the U.S. Airways Airbus 320, I believe it was, in the Hudson River? Do you know this oh, story? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah so I, I think it took too, off yeah. from LaGuardia, and then he landed it. Hero, hero, absolute hero. Had the movie made about him. And you know how he knew if he could make it to Teterboro Airport or not? Really interesting. He knew this because he would look out at the horizon in front of him. And an airplane, even after the engine goes out, can actually glide for a while. Now, how do you know if your airplane can make it there gliding or not? Well, it's sort of like catching a pop fly, right? So baseball mm. is hit, ball hits the metal, and you're the center fielder. What do you do? You do not sit down and start doing calculations. You do not have the physics come out. You do no math. And yet, you have people like Willie Mays in the outfield that when he has the catch, his hat flies off, he's turning around, he catches the ball, throws it back to the infield right after. All that is intuitive because he has these heuristics that are deeply embedded into the structure of human consciousness that allow him to catch the ball. So back to Sully. What he did, and this is what, if you're ever flying an airplane, an Airbus airplane where the engines go out, he looked out, and if your destination on the horizon is going up, you can't make it. So you're just looking and you have the middle of the horizon. If it's going up, you can't make it. If it's going down, you can. So all you need to do is fly for 10 seconds. You can look at the airport. You can say, is that going up or down? And he saw that it was going up on the horizon meaning that he wasn't going to be able to make it. And as a result, he had to land the airplane in the river. Had it been going down, he would have glided there, gone on airport radio, said, Teterboro, I need you to clear out the runways. I need to land automatically. And he would have tried to land the airplane there. Very interesting. My point here is with confirmation bias, the flip side of confirmation bias is focus. So take somebody like me. I focus a lot on writing online. I believe that writing online and publishing online is one of the biggest arbitrage opportunities in the world right now. Intellectuals are criminally underserved with interesting and important information. And if you can deliver that to them, you can have incredible opportunities. People who you thought you'd never be able to meet will reach out to you. And not only will they want to meet you, but they will reach out and say, how can I help? And the flip side of confirmation bias is focus. And in order to do anything that is meaningful, anything that is important, anything that is difficult, you need focus. And focus and confirmation bias are deeply paradoxical, right? So the question is, how should we think through this? Well, this is what is hard about thinking is we can't just say, oh, we don't want confirmation bias because then we end up in a place where we're not able to commit to anything. We're not able to say, you know what, I'm going to keep going when the going gets tough. And my point here is just that confirmation bias isn't necessarily something that is bad. 
it is something that we should absolutely be aware of. And beyond that, I think we should be aware of it taking it a step further where one of the big results, big findings of the work of Danny Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning behavioral economist, one of the things he found is that knowing about these behavioral biases really doesn't prevent you from falling trapped to them. So, for example, there's a book called Influence by Robert Cialdini. Everybody should read it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, great book. And one of the ideas in it is reciprocity. That if somebody gives you something, even if it's small, they just give you a little bit of like a cookie when you walk in, or they do something very small that's nice for you, as humans, we feel a biological need to do something nice back for them. Now, you will feel that regardless of what happens, but there are, and I actually think Walmart does this very deliberately, that they refuse to take anything for free from other people. So they will meet on neutral grounds or... I think, don't quote me on it. They'll either meet on neutral grounds or invite others to their place. And they do that so that the reciprocity principle doesn't kick in. And I know a lot of people who are the same way. So my point oh, is, yeah. you take something- Despise the free lunch, man. Exactly. I, I despise the free lunch like no other. Exactly. Oh, so, so just to finish this, my point is that you want to be aware of these things, but they're all- f- ideas that you want to dance with they are chips that you want to put down at certain times but very rarely are they always true and what's interesting about behavioral biases is that people say oh they're always bad when like in the example of the outfielder like in the example of the airport pilot they often are heuristics are much smarter than our rational intelligence yeah, yeah. David, I'm, I'm going to take you back a little bit, actually. I didn't know if you had went to college or not, but after doing a little more research, I saw that you did. Number one, did you finish? And number two, what did you think you were going to do going into college? Yeah, so I did finish college. I graduated, have a diploma at home, was looking at it a couple weeks ago. And nice. I mean, I was in a totally different place in my life i took golf very seriously so golf was basically all i did for five six years like i probably spent from 2009 to 2000 2009 to 2015 16 probably 30 percent of my waking hours on a golf course and that's just what i did i mean all summer i would repeatedly get to the course when there were stars in the sky and leave when there were also stars in the sky i was there all day so I went to Elon originally to play golf. There was uh, I had no business getting into Elon. I was a terrible student, and I got in to Elon because the golf coach, his name was Bill Morningstar. This is how he talked, and he called me one day and he said, "David, you're in as a golf recruit." And I said, "Well, Bill, that's that's amazing." And I chose Elon because I wanted to play Division One golf in a school that was in warm weather, that was small, that was also not so good that they wouldn't have me on the team. So I found, I remember three schools fit this, Gardner-Webb, High Point, and Elon. Gardner-Webb was too religious, so I scrapped it. So then there was High Point Elon, and I visited them both October of 2012. And... No, it would have been October 2011 and visited them and met with the golf coach and decided on Elon because it was actually a pretty good school. 
and got in for golf, did that, then transitioned a bit more into broadcasting. So I was doing college television and that was really intense. I had to produce a five minute live segment for our college TV station, did that every Monday. And then every Wednesday morning, I recorded a show called Elon Phoenix Weekly. And the claim to fame for that show was I would wake up on Sunday morning every week and I would see myself on ESPN2 in North Carolina because it was the live show that aired on ESPN2 throughout the entire state at 7 a.m. And so I hosted that. So I did some college television stuff. Mm. Then I tried to start a, because I was really into golf, a golf instruction business. And what I had thought was, hey, I'll go digitize golf instruction. And like if my whole career failed now, I would go do this and I'd be one of the top instructors in the world in three or four years, guaranteed, because I would use media in order to, to, to sort of figure this out. And my idea, which I still think was right, I didn't have just the resources to do it, was to basically say, how do we deliver golf instruction in a way that's digital, in a way that can be better? And so try to start that. But then my co-founder ended up going to Barcelona to study abroad. We just never took it seriously. We were college kids. But I learned that at the time I was managing the world's largest collection of slow motion golf swing videos. I was managing that collection of YouTube videos for my golf coach who worked with a couple guys on the PGA Tour. And so just throughout that time, I ended up building a lot of the intuition for the work that I do now. And so... When does writing come into the picture? Yeah, so I then started writing roughly around my senior year of college. What I wow. learned was my sophomore year, I started using Twitter and I was like, whoa, you can use Twitter and reach people who were remarkably impressive. And from that, I... Started using Twitter, got my first internship in New York City Jul from June to August of that summer, then did another internship in New York City the year after, then through Twitter found my first job at an advertising agency in New York when the CEO of this incredible firm uh, called Laundry Service, at the time we ran social for Twitter, Apple, Jordan, Beats by Dre, LG, just some incredible brands. And I ended up being the third person on that sales team. That year, just three of us did about $40 million in revenue. Insane. That's where I learned work ethic. And it was an awesome learning experience, but I got laid off after seven months. And mm -hmm. then I just doubled down on writing after I published an article called Naked Brands, which to me felt like went viral with like 6,000 views. And I said, whoa, this writing thing really works. You can reach some pretty cool people. And I've just been doubling down on it since. And how do you get good at writing? I think, you know, maybe part of it is the reps. I've certainly found that, look, I don't write as much, nearly as much as you. Like, you're you're pretty prolific with the amount that you write. I'm not. But I have periods where, like, when I'm writing, you know, if I'm writing a book, like, I go, I'm really in the zone. And I'm do that's it's, it's the only thing I'm doing. And I find that, like, I just get so much better as as the days and weeks pass by. But do you have any other tips on like how to get good at writing? Yeah, one of the things that nobody talks about, which was game changing for me, and it's one of the things that I focus on in my writing course called Write a Passage. So I teach a five-week online writing course. Right. Where basically it 
goes in three parts. You build up your online infrastructure, so what you actually need to deliver your ideas to the world, then the actual mechanics of writing, and then using writing to become what I call a citizen of the internet. And one of the things that almost no writing teacher talks about, but once you have this, writing is so much easier, is a really good note-taking system. So I have what amounts to basically a second brain that I think with. And that second brain isn't, most people think of notes of, oh, I'm going to go to the grocery store and I'm going to remember all the things that I need to remember. And my business partner, he has a course called Building a Second Brain that we have the basics sort of incorporated within Rite of Passage and the two courses fit together like puzzle pieces. And basically the idea of that is, what if you had two brains? Both of them sort of come up with ideas, but one is your actual brain. The other is a brain that stores all your ideas, that remembers things for you because computers have perfect memory. And so the what that does is it contributes to a lot of serendipity. Writing becomes a lot easier once you start seeing things in your notes not that you just wanted to remember, but things that you forgot that you wrote down in the first place. That's when writing gets interesting. So for example, today I was writing about labor force automation and I was going through, like we were talking about earlier, the pros and cons of automation. What is the best argument for more automation? What is the best argument for less automation? And I was, as I was making the less automation argument, that is the one that I disagree with, I think, I found but a paper. You, nevertheless, you were making the argument. Yeah, exactly. From the other side. Exactly. So I found a paper that basically talked about some of the issues that people face when they lose their work and how that then contributed, contributes to declines in marriages. So it's called the marriage go round effect where low-income people in America are much more likely to get divorced than high-income people, according to this study. And I had totally forgotten that I read that. But what I was able to do was type in automation work, go into my notes, and then what I can do is I can pull together different ideas that I already have into a coherent outline. And rather than the college style of notes of, hey, I'm going to read all these books for a semester, then I'm going to throw my notes away at the end of the semester. What a ridiculous thing to do. I cannot believe we teach this. It is patently absurd. What we should do is you should be collecting up notes throughout your entire life. And then once you sit down to start doing something and it's time to write, you should have a collection of all the best things you've ever thought, all the best things you've ever written in a centralized place so that it can help you start writing. So then from there, writing becomes so much easier. And I call that writing from abundance. So most people, they write from scarcity. They start from scratch, makes it really hard. When you write, you should never be staring at a blank page. One of the best ways to write better is to have two pages on your screen. One is a collection of notes and quotes and images and ideas that you've collected. The other is just the blank page that you write on. And by having those two pages, you won't have writer's block, which makes writing a hell of a lot easier. Yeah, I have notes, a lot of notes actually, because I'm, I'm definitely an advocate for keeping an idea journal, been so for many years. And so I have this like physically written. Do you, I mean, do you have any preference, David, as to like physical in a notebook versus- Definitely digital. You know, in something- Definitely digital. Really? Yeah, because digital, it's searchable and 
Now, oh, I know yeah. that Sur- there very are very searchable. People, that's a big thing. I know. Yeah. Th- so a couple comments on this. So there there are people like Nassim Taleb, for example, who he just insists on reading paper books. And I know Keith Raboy, who is a big name Silicon Valley venture capitalist at Founders Fund, he's similar, just insists on reading physical books. And the studies do show that retention from physical books are better. That does seem to be true. Now, I think that the lower retention for me and my style is outweighed by the lifelong searchability of saving the best ideas that I read through highlights. And so I don't even need to write them down. I just highlight them and they automatically save into my digital note-taking folder. Now, there was a book that recently came out called How to Take Smart Notes. No one's heard about it. Amazing book. Highly recommend. And it's about an author who wrote some ridiculous amount of notes and or a ridiculous amount of books, but it was because he was super prolific. I mean, he must have published like 80 books or something. And his secret was he had this note-taking system that he called a Zettelkasten. And what it allowed him to do was file, save, and organize all of his notes. And what was interesting was he didn't organize his notes by, by the source. So usually what you do is you would say, these are my notes, like this book right behind me is called The Timeless Way of Building by Christopher Alexander. This book is called The Power Broker by Robert Caro. And then this is the Robert Caro series. But now, what he did was rather than organizing it by this is where I got my information from, he organized it by the context that he wanted to find it in. So the way that he organized his notes was to plant serendipity for himself later on. So that what he could do is organize it by the context with which he wanted to find those ideas. And by focusing on context and the topic, he was much more able to create serendipity for yourself. So what notes are good for is not to remember what you need at the grocery store. It is not to just write stuff down and remember it better. It is transcends those ideas. It is about remembering things that you forgot you had even consumed in the first place. And once you start feeling that intellectual serendipity, the quality of your writing, the quality of your thinking, and the power that you begin to have with words skyrockets. I don't think this is something many people think about. I mean, it's certainly not something that I've thought about, you know, the the functionality of, uh, of notes, you know, this is definitely, so I definitely have a lot of room for improvement there. What about like some of your pet peeves, David, with writing? I know you mentioned like, I mean, put your neck out there, you know, don't use words like perhaps, maybe, probably. Is there anything else that, that yeah, stays I, top of mind? Hollow words. You're writing. So one of the things that people do is they will write words that just they don't mean anything like it's almost amazing that there's just words on the page that aren't doing anything for the reader so there's yes hollow words and then there's things that are similar to cliches so i'll talk about them each in turn so if i were to talk about hollow words you could say something along the lines of like here we go so my alarm 
is not as good as my the alarm in my room, which isn't as good as the Alexa. Like once you get to the Alexa or the Sonos, that is a much more vivid picture. You could say something smelled bad versus something reeked. Something reeked is such a sharper word than bad. And yeah, it's more colorful. So that's something that I would 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 focus on. Then deleting your hollow words. Like if it isn't Jason Zweig at the Wall Street Journal has this great line where he says, I want you to respect words. I I want you to treat them like they're 45-pound weights at the gym. Be careful when it when you pick them up, be careful when you put them down, as if words are dangerous. And words co- should cost you something. That's how you should treat them. Copywriters Definitely. have a line that says, each additional word costs you $100. So take oh, everything man. out. They say, write with your eraser. And it's something that you should think about a lot. Now, the next idea that I would focus on when writing is always ask, could the opposite be true? Because if the opposite can't be true, then it's not worth writing. So, for example, I was on the phone with a friend, and this was a couple weeks ago, and I said something to the effect of, I don't want to do work that I don't like doing. And he said, David, of course, that, 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 that sentence has no informational content in it at all. And he said it lovingly, but he was right. He said, now, let's talk about what is the trade-off that you're willing to make? to not do work that you don't want to do at all? Are you willing to give up millions of dollars a year to not do work that you don't want to do? Or are you only willing to give up $50,000 a year? Now, that's an interesting conversation. But to just say, I don't like doing work that I don't like doing isn't nearly as interesting as I don't like doing work that I don't like doing. I refuse to do it. And something to the effect of, I am willing to not build a big business because of that. That is interesting. And so often people say these things where the opposite can't be true. Who likes doing work that they don't like doing? Nobody. And that's something that you want to think about when you're writing is, could the opposite be true? And if not, don't write it. Yeah. I want to comment on, uh, you know, you mentioned like the copywriter saying like, you know, each additional word, $100. Yeah, something that I learned and Mark Manson has this amazing writing course that I took maybe a year ago, uh, took a lot of notes on, but just get rid of the unnecessary words. Mm-hmm. So often we can, el- we can eliminate so many words, uh, and, and it'll have the exact same meaning. It'll be much clearer, um, and, and frankly, much better writing. Um, I found this too in, my TED talk when I had to like, you know, I, I, I wrote something that was going to take 25 minutes to talk about uh, when, when I only had 12. Now I got it up to 16. Um, I ended up having 16 minutes, but going through, you know, everything that I wrote, we, we don't even realize like sometimes we say things more than once. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, and it's almost like an insult to the audience's intelligence. Like, you know, we say like, We'll ha- we'll have two sentences back to back. I don't know. Of course, I don't have an example right now, but like we'll be we'll say say it one way and then we'll say it another way. Like it only needs to be in there once, and and even in those sentences, you can get rid of a couple of words, and it'll and the, the exact same meaning will still come across. And and I got it down to sixteen minutes, fifteen minutes actually. I got it to a point where it was a much better talk than it would have been at twenty five minutes, and it makes me think like 
my gosh, all the, like I go in, you know, I'll go into a classroom and talk for 50 minutes. Like, I feel like I can make it 15 minutes now. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I don't, you know what I mean? It makes me wonder how much more I could cut, you know, from my presentations and my other writings. Right. Well, the thing with speaking is there's also an element of rhetoric, of rhetoric that where repetition is really helpful. And there's that famous line in speaking that you want to tell them what you're going to say, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. So actually, there is an art to repeating yourself, but you don't want the listener to say, ah, I've already heard this. And so within speaking, for example, a lot of great speaking has repetition. So if you take something like Mm. the... The famous Martin Luther King's famous I have a dream speech. He says, let freedom ring from the stone mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from lookout mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and molehill of Mississippi from every mountainside. Let freedom ring. And then he goes into free at last, free at last, great God almighty, we are free at last. And that's how he ends the speech to just a roar of applause. So... A lot of these things, and this is what's hard about writing. Writing is a hammock, right? The, the, the way that people think about these things is that they're rules. And rules are fine for certain contexts, but not for a craft. So with a craft, what you want is you want the hammock. How does a hammock work? It is held in tension by strings from both sides and those strings are pulling in opposite directions which keeps it stable and then within the hammock the hammock itself is swinging back and forth from one side to another side one side to another side if a hammock is still that is a rule a still hammock is not fun to be on at all. What you want is a hammock that swings. And it's the same thing with writing styles. It's the same way with these communication rules that we talk about. We want the don't repeat yourself string on one side, and then we want the repeat yourself in a way that's elegant, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty we are free at last. And you want both of those things to be held in tension like a hammock. And that is where art is produced. Nice. Yeah, David, this has been fantastic. I learned a lot. You're you're a very original thinker. Um, and I want to make sure, again, that people find you Perel with one R and two L's dot com at David underscore Perel on Twitter and North Star Podcast. I listened to your episode uh, almost two years ago with James Clear, learned a lot about habits, um, specifically about why? I mean, it was almost therapeutic listening to this. Why I struggle so much with my health habits when I'm on the road. But anyway, good podcast with James Clear on uh, Atomic Habits. Great book. And uh, so I recommend listening to that. If you just look up David Perel, James Clear, I'm sure you can come up. Listeners, you can be resourceful. Either way, I'll link to it in the show notes. David, I got one final question for you. If you could teach a course at a university, a course of your creation or otherwise, what would it be? Of course, writing. I mean, writing online, right? Yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah, is, yeah. that is that is the ultimate skill. And uh, we have some plans, my friend. I can't say them now, but uh, but that 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 isn't as much a hypothetical as you think. I'll put it that way. Excellent. Well, David Perel, you're the man. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jordan. Appreciate your time. We've reached the end of this episode of Growth Mindset University. For more keys to success and methods to inspire your entrepreneurial spirit, 
Head to jordanparis.com slash course and enroll in our free course to elevate your podcast to the next level. Be sure to pass the show along to someone you know who will benefit from the lessons learned in each episode and we'll catch you and them on the next episode of Growth Mindset University.